Well, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Nerd Alert with Dan and Dean. And uh, today we're getting back to, um, I guess, our, our biological roots, so to speak. Last week, or wasn't really last week, last episode was kind of a departure uh, where we talked about nuclear power. And for me, that definitely took a lot of prep compared to some of the other episodes. But I thought it was pretty interesting. And um, I think we had a good discussion. I think it went pretty well. It was definitely uh, out of my wheelhouse, but I certainly learned a lot, and I hope you did too. Well, I think I sent you a video. I found that there was a walkthrough of MIT's academic reactor that is just right on campus in Cambridge, and it was such a relief to watch how they were describing uh, the reactor and that we were actually pretty accurate in what we were talking about. And what was also crazy, and I didn't and maybe this is just because of the design of the reactor, they were actually working like right above the reactor, above like a 10-foot water bath. So they were able to just look down at the reactor, like the naked core, um, because the water was that good. I mean, we talked about how water was a good moderator, but I thought that was crazy. Um, so it, it was really interesting. So I've, I've seen nuclear stuff everywhere now since that episode. I think... Uh especially with the war in Ukraine that's going on now, uh, the UN is getting very, very concerned about this one particular reactor that's, uh, I don't know if you've been hearing about this uh, in in the news, but this one reactor that's been taking a lot of uh, missile fire and, uh, you know, not being regulated the way it's supposed to. They're very concerned about a nuclear meltdown, which we all know what it actually means now. Yeah, and that was one of the concerns we talked about toward the end, which was... uh you know, aggressors and war and how do, how does dysregulation affect, uh, you know, the safety of those plants. So, um, but today we're going to go to a, a much lighter topic by comparison, not as many, um, global implications, uh, for the future. And we're talking about spicy food and kind of why humans like spicy food, what makes foods spicy and, Basically, how it works. Um, so, it should be kind of should be kind of fun. Dean, you like spicy food, right? I do like spicy food, Dan. Um, actually, w- when when we recorded the nuclear power episode, I had made the the joke to Dan that we should have switched it because uh, I was in the process of making habanero pepper cheesy bread, uh, which for what it's oh, worth yeah. <laughs> is so good. But anyway, um, I was trying to clean. You know, you work with the peppers, and then you try to clean your glasses, and then it gets really close to your eyes, and then you just start bawling for no reason. That was me. So it would have been more appropriate to do this last time, but here we are. Yeah, last time you were you were feeling the effects of uh, some of the chemicals that we're going to be talking about, I think. And since we started, since we planned to do this episode, and I started kind of you know reading about it a little bit, I got down a YouTube hole of watching people uh, doing like a ghost pepper challenge, <laughs> where or like a Carolina Reaper challenge, where you know they take a bite of the pepper and you basically just get to watch twenty minutes of that person just suffering trying to eat this pepper uh and so that was that was kind of uh entertaining at the very least uh but it was distracting you know it kind of it kind of got me got me sidetracked but uh yeah i've been way more aware of you know the source of spiciness or kind of hotness in some of the food i've been eating since we started doing this episode and kind of thinking about uh spicy foods more and they're really everywhere and they're all around the world and all different cultures. I mean, humans just like spicy food. And uh, it's kind of strange. It's a little weird. I think we can talk about, uh, we, we should we should probably close on why we eat them 
yeah. maybe a little later. Like, what, what, what's the incentive? Um, but just to give a little bit of, uh, of of context here, put everyone on a level playing field. What is hotness? And this is this is me pushing up the middle of my glasses with one <laughs> finger. So technically, when we say spiciness or, or hotness or heat, the the correct word is pungency. That is the oh, really? scientific technical word for what everyone calls spicy. Hmm. So when we say spicy, technically we mean pungent. Okay. Not in the it smells pungent, but it, it's actually technically pungent. Hmm. Um, but anyway, so back in uh, 1912, this, this dude, Will, Wilbur Scoville, um, developed the Scoville scale. Um, which is sort of this derivative of an organoleptic test, which is a test that uh, sort of uh, examines sensory experiences of foods. Um, so it, it's a very qualitative kind of kind of assay, and calling it an assay is probably uh, a little bit too generous. But it tests the pungency of foods, and it, it's based on the concentration of things called capsaicinoids, uh, mostly You've probably heard of this one, capsaicin, which is by far the most abundant capsaicinoid. This test is extraordinarily subjective. Um, and actually, in, in modern day, different institutions use uh, high-performance liquid chromatography to be a lot more precise with how pungent foods are. But the way the process works, uh, the, the Scoville scale works, is you take an exact mass of a dried pepper or, or something, and you dissolve it in alcohol to extract all of the capsaicinoids. Capsaicinoids mm -hmm. are soluble in alcohol, so the alcohol kind of picks it all up. And then you dilute that solution in sugar water because you don't want all your taste testers to just be hammered the whole time. Um, <laughs> On spicy food. Exactly. And alcohol. And alcohol. Well, that that's really what's doing the hammering there, right? I mean, I'm sure it would still be unpleasant if you didn't dilute it. Uh, from a spicy oh. perspective, oh. too. <laughs> so, some some of the uh, the blogs, like the the firsthand accounts that I was reading of these taste testers, were like, it should be illegal for us to test things at certain levels because it is insane. And, and these are firsthand accounts from like back in the nineteen twelve whatever era when this test was developed, or like people today doing the test. I think it, it was, it, it was more designed. like nineteen nineties onward because people okay. still do it this way. It's well. Uh, you, you mentioned it's qualitative. It's um, it's not very specific, but it kind of gives you a sense of like where the extreme ends of the spectrum are, and it sort of helps you like order uh, like relative heat, right? Even if right. it's not as you know quantifiable as we might get today with modern methods. Right. Yeah. I think that this is more of a um, get me an answer within an order of magnitude kind of question as opposed to give me the decimal. Right. Value. Is is this one hotter than that one? Right. Or not? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, so, so you have this uh, this diluted capsaicinoid solution in sugar water. Um, and then you essentially give decreasing concentrations of that solution to a panel of five trained test experts. So the, the, these people are all not just foodies. They are they have refined palates and they have been trained on how to uh, sort of quantify whether they can taste the spice or not. And after a certain number of dilutions, that solution kind of washes away or, or dilutes out most of the heat or most of the pungency rather. And the number of dilutions that it takes so that the majority of that panel can no longer taste the pungency is the Scoville heat unit. Um, so it's 
really just a, a, a number of dilutions that it takes to make something not spicy anymore. Right. It's really what it boils down to. Yeah, and we still do use that scale today. It's, I don't know, like, like you said, I mean, I, I think today the measurements are more kind of consistent and normalized to the kind of, because the modern methods you mentioned, like the liquid um, chromatography, that's sort of looking at like the density of these capsaicinoid molecules and the abundance of different ones in some solution. So we can kind of map the Scoville scale against that, but those numbers are still used. Like when you, if you look up like how hot a pepper is today, chances are the unit you're going to get is in uh, SHUs, right? Scoville units. So um, it, it's, it's definitely still very relevant, even if it's uh, been replaced by a more refined approach. So <laughs> I, I actually found this really funny, um, and I'll explain why. Uh, the, the American Spice Trade Association, the ASTA, um, is the, uh, the group that has formally been tasked with actually measuring the amount of pungency in, in foods. So first off, I thought it was ridiculous that there's an actual institution that is, is dedicated to doing this. But anyway, <laughs> they use that high-performance liquid chromatography. They're fairly scientific in their approach, which okay. there's you know, nothing to discredit there. No. Um, and they came up with uh, effectively a conversion where one ASTA pungency unit, named after themselves, which I always find a little obnoxious, um, is about... Trademark. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Is slightly less than 15 Scoville heat units. So okay. there is actually a conversion, um, but at, at, as you s sort of read about these uh, equivalencies, there are a lot of reports that the ASTA pungency is like between 20 and 40% lower than the Scoville heat units. So oh, really? it's like not quite that accurate, but more importantly, no one uses the ASTA value. Yeah, and sorry. I think that's largely because you, you, you have these, they're not cult followings, but these you know, really foodie heavy you know the, these right. really you know i love hot pepper gung-ho people groups right yeah they loathe for whatever reason they <laughs> absolutely hate the american spice trade association they just do not agree with anything about it and i find it so funny because there are like you go on reddit people hate it well it's it's like and that that is really funny it, it's sort of um yeah kind of demystifies or institutionalizes the process and you you see this culture in other food or kind of consumption i mean you know think about like uh bourbon or uh, wine or, or or things where you can sort of you know chase some elusive uh in this case you know peppers or or hot sauces or limited releases and things but it's also a and we'll talk about this a little bit toward the end there there's this community like you're you're in the club kind of aspect which as people uh we love that stuff we, we love being included so that is really funny though that people are a little uh or, or a lot a, a, a lot definitely <laughs> yeah. more towards the a lot side of that scale <laughs> yeah uh, but so talking about scales just to you know give everyone a sense of how spicy are some foods on the Scoville scale, so th this is all in Scoville heat units. Again, no one cares about the ASTA. Um, we use Scoville heat units in this house. Absolutely. And th that, oh, you could be <laughs> thrown out if you suggest otherwise, Dan. Don't, yeah. don't get me wrong. I won't. Um, so zero Scoville heat units is the definition for a bell pepper. Bell peppers have no pungency. 
according to every test expert ever. So that's where a zero is on the scale. At 100 SHUs, you start to see banana peppers, and then 1,000 is a poblano. So this scale is not, you know, in the range of, like, 1 to 10. We're talking, like, 1 to a billion. Where are you on this scale? So zero is a bell pepper, 100 banana pepper, 1,000 is a poblano, 10,000 is a serrano pepper, 50,000 is a cayenne pepper. I think cayennes are fairly hot. So in the 50,000 range, that's where I'm like, all right. But even with banana peppers, I mean, like... Would I call them spicy? No, but I mean banana peppers. You can taste that. Yeah, they're peppery. more sweet than spicy. Yeah, but I, I think I could see how you're getting into like right, there's right, right. some pungency because yeah, by comparison, bell peppers are basically bland. Right. You know, so there's, you, there's nothing there. You yeah. double a cayenne pepper, right? So at a hundred thousand, we're looking at Thai chilies. Two hundred thousand is a habanero chili. So two hundred thousand is like my prime. I don't want to get too much hotter than that. I yeah. love habaneros. They make me sweat. They make me like it. But that's about as much as I'm willing to give. You don't want to fly too close to the sun. There you go. Did you say where jalapenos are? Um, I did not say where jalapenos are. Do you know where jalapenos are? I think they are... I think they're at 22,000. I, I, so I, I, I had 25,000 written down. And I'm sure that I'm just rounding. Well, so. maybe that's another uh, important point here is that these peppers are harvested from... Like plants, like they're they're different, and just in the same way that, you know, you might buy a mango from the store and find that it's extremely sweet, and then you might buy another one like a week later or even in a different season, and it, it's just not as sweet or doesn't taste as good. It's the same thing with these peppers. Like, you know, it's generally on average, or depending, obviously, like farming practices are very refined today in terms of producing consistent crops and so yeah you you might have a jalapeno that's twenty five thousand. you might have one that's 22 or even twenty thousand. so each of them there is some margin of error for like again a variety of factors where is it being grown what seeds are you using you know which plants is it coming from so that's another point too so it is imperfect and these are just general you know most of the time values right no that's actually a really good point and i I don't know that i would call it a margin of error per se it's not to say anyone's missing right right, right. there is some just natural variation in how that's a better way to phrase it these foods are Mm -hmm. uh but yeah what the nutrients in the soil the season the amount of rain like it's all factors into to what the end result is um where were we? Right. So 200,000 is a habanero chili. That's that's about as much as I'm willing to take. Mm-hmm. 500,000 is a red savina habanero. Right. So these are the, I don't know if you've, I, I would have called them the super habaneros. They're really, really, really hot. I've had one before, um, not willingly, and it was very hot. <laughs> um, after that, so at, after the 500,000 mark, we, we start to get into the super hots. Um, so this is a category sort of defined by the over 1 million um, Scoville heat units. So at a million, we get the, the scorpion pepper, the Trinidad Maruga scorpion and the ghost pepper, right? These are the low end of these super hots at 1.64 million. You get your Carolina Reaper. And by that, I mean the original Carolina Reaper, the one that was made in 2013. Mm -hmm. The next one is the dragon's breath which is... Uh, Very think, approachable names here, right? Oh, they yeah, right. Don't that, sound intimidating <laughs> at all. <laughs> so th- this one was actually... The, the guy that cultivated it, um, what, he, he named it after the Welsh dragon because he is Welsh. Oh, okay. um, and that is 2.48 million. Wow. Right? And then we get 3.18 million, right? This is Pepper X, 
um, who was, <laughs> I, I also thought that this was a little funny. He is like your typical, um, you know, chasing the hottest pepper kind of guy. His name is Ed Curry. Actually, his nickname is Smokin' Ed Curry, <laughs> um, who was actually the creator of the Carolina Reaper. Um, he, he went on to sort of crossbreed a whole lot of different super hot peppers and came out with what he's calling Pepper X, 3.18 million. Now, technically, the Guinness Book of World Records still has the Carolina Reaper as the hottest um, right. at over 2 million uh, for, for a newer um, lineage of Carolina Reaper. Uh, but the Dragon Breath and uh, Pepper X are both hotter, just unconfirmed by uh, Guinness Book. Well, and uh, this goes, and I think this is kind of where you're going with this. I was, I guess, surprised is the word I'd use to see that the rankings of hottest peppers change like year to year Mm -hmm. Um, because in my mind it was again like uh, the Carolina Reaper is the hottest pepper period and that's generally true at least recently it's it's been kind of like you said it's been repeatedly kind of championed as the hottest pepper but yeah like there's there's uh I don't know back and forth like there's ebbing and flowing as new like strains I don't know that's not the right word here new uh, new crops right. kind of come into uh, yeah, yeah and, into and the for, fold. For, for what it's worth, the Carolina Reaper it it did not exist before the year 2013. Like it is not which a I never knew naturally occurring pepper. We didn't just stumble across it, chomp on it, and go, "Wow, that's the hottest one." <laughs> this guy from Michigan intentionally tried to make the hottest pepper, and he did. He spent so much time wondering if he could. He'd never <laughs> stop to ask if he should. And to that point. <laughs> Like, we're continually breeding hotter and hotter peppers. Like, I read somewhere that the Carolina Reaper, and this may be since, you know, its inception in 2013, it's been measured at going up at least, like, 71,000 Scoville. I mean, that's that's not an insignificant fraction of the original heat level. Uh, You know, it's not like we're moving the needle, oh, it went up 20 Scoville, which out of 2 million is, you know, nothing. I mean, it's definitely hotter, uh, which is pretty... Uh, pretty interesting. I mean, you see that kind of selective breeding in, again, all forms of agriculture and food science. Uh, but it's kind of cool to see how much people are pushing to get that next hottest pepper and be the one to kind of put it on the market. Right. Usually when we talk about you know GMO crops or uh, you know selective breeding for agriculture, it's you know t- to make more corn or more sustainable right. whatever. It's not you know to make something that you're gonna enjoy eating less like that. <laughs> Well, and speaking of uh, enjoying things less, I I didn't actually get the name uh, of this pepper, but apparently there's at least one pepper that is so hot that it's expected to be fatal if you were to eat it. Uh, I think I saw that it was 10 million Scoville units, and I'm amazed that no one's actually tried to eat this pepper yet. Definitely not endorsing it. Definitely don't eat this pepper, but... Uh, so there are, I guess, in theory, some that are actually too hot. There, There is potentially an upper limit on what your body could handle uh, given you know the right, the right heat level. Um, I'll have to look up that name, and, and maybe I'll add it to the description. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to learn that. Um, so we have two, two and a half million, right, is Dragon's Breath. 3.1 million, called 3.2 million, is Pepper X. For perspective, somewhere between two and four and a half million, depending on the grade, that's pepper spray. So <laughs> some of these peppers are actually, you know, more pungent than pepper spray. 16 million is pure capsaicin. Okay. So if you're talking about a pepper that is 10 million, that is woof. Yeah. Uh, not 
and I forget the name. It, it was something even more intimidating than Dragon's Breath. But um. Oh, I doubt that. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the last one that I'll throw at you. So we're going to move away from, you know, edible things. We've obviously moved into weapons already. Um, but <laughs> what, the, the last one, Racinopherotoxin. Um, this is a compound that's found in resin spurge, which is this cactus that's found all over Morocco. Um, it is a thousand times more pungent than pure capsaicin. On the Scoville scale, it has a rating of 16 billion. So you don't even want to be in the same room as that one. And we'll, we, we can talk about the biology of this one a little bit more, but um, there, there are some animal experiments that sort of lead to the conclusion that about one and a half, 1.6 grams of this stuff will be fatal to humans. So th- wow. th- this is, you know, this is the real deal. I get that people I mean, want to eat insane. super hot things, but not all things are meant to be eaten. This is one of those things. Right. Just because we can measure it on the same scale as food that we can eat doesn't necessarily mean it would be uh, a good idea to do exactly. so. That's crazy. Wow. So I, I thought that uh, ricinopherotoxin was just... And th- there are a whole lot of articles and you know interesting literature about this. Uh, and, and it's not always in the context of peppers. It's actually being explored in the medical community, again, for the biology that we'll talk about. Um, but so my question to you, Dan, is we talked about what's hot and, you know, the relative scale. What actually makes this stuff pungent? Like chemicals? Yeah, it's uh, it's all chemicals. So you mentioned capsaicin and capsaicinoids. That's the main factor here that makes them spicy. So capsaicin is... You know, scientists think that it's been kind of, uh, it's evolved, or these peppers have evolved to develop capsaicin as a deterrent against certain mammals and fungi. And so capsaicin as a molecule, it's hydrophobic, uh, it's colorless. And as we said, it's it's very highly pungent. And usually when you're looking at the inside of a pepper, uh, the highest concentration is in that white pith of the inner wall, uh, which is sort of where the seeds anchor inside the pepper. So not to cut you off, no, I, I have a couple friends that are you know pretty into hot foods, and they always do that. You know, this is going to be the second time this episode where I push my glasses up in the middle <laughs> with one finger, like, "Hey, it's not hot because of the seeds, guys." Right? Like, yeah, you, I mean, you're right, but you're also not giving us the answer. This is that answer, though. Right. This is generally how how it goes. And what I thought was actually interesting is, you know, we mentioned capsaicin itself is colorless. One trend that I saw in, you know, and again, there's different lists of hottest peppers and, you know, claims of hottest peppers and stuff. Most of the hottest peppers are red or at least some shade of like a brownish red or bright red. Um, there is one, the seven pot... Uh, Dola, I think is what it's called. It's at about 1.8 million Scoville units. It's not red. It's one of the few very hot peppers that is not red. So I thought that was kind of interesting because, yeah, when you look at the increasingly hot peppers, I mean, some of them get violently red. Uh, So it's kind of interesting that even though the capsaicin scaling up, it apparently isn't related to that color change. I'm not sure what is. So here, here's a interesting trivia question. I don't know that there's any actual validity to this answer, mm-hmm. but I believed it. <laughs> why, why are peppers so brightly colored? Why are super hot peppers so brightly colored? I don't know. I would assume it's some kind of evolutionary mechanism to make them more 
attractive to the animals that are going to disperse their seeds? And that is 100% exactly what the answer is. So oh, great. They're, they're not Where do I win? To, yeah, uh, I'll give you a high five. Here you go. Great. That sounds good. <laughs> so the, the chemical irritant of capsaicin or these capsaicinoids deters, you know, insects, mammals, fungi. It, it, it's a chemical repellent um, to kind of keep the fruits intact. But the bright colors attract birds, and mm-hmm. birds are completely unaffected biologically by capsaicinoids. They don't know what they're missing out on. Oh, I don't know. I might, in some situations, I'd rather be a bird. <laughs> um, right. No, you're right. And and birds are then usually the ones who will eat these peppers and you know distribute those seeds, uh, either because they've just you know eaten the pepper and and seeds get spilled out while they're eating it. Uh, or obviously through droppings and things like that. And so the peppers can then spread over, um, you know, a, a larger area, basically. And that, that's, I mean, that's an important feature of most um, or a large subset of different plants in general is some of them depend on animals to eat them and then, you know, distribute those seeds. They can't really do it on their own, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So just uh, for, for, you know, my own sanity to throw out some scientific words here, uh, kept capsaicin, the actual uh, metabolite, its chemical name is methyl and vanillyl non-enamide. No one ever needs to know that, but I had it written down and I thought I could pronounce it. I hope I did a good job. <laughs> I think you did. Uh, thank you. Uh, th- this metabolite is produced by uh, the capsaicin, uh, or sorry, the capsicum genus of flowering plants mm-hmm. um, in, in the, that, you know, you're talking about kingdom phylum genus species, that, that, that whole Right. You know, tree. Hierarchy. Yeah, there you go. Hmm. Um, it, it's in the family of Solanaceae, which are nightshades. Okay. Um, and all of the fruits contain some amount of capsaicin. And that's also technically including bell peppers. They do have capsaicin. It's just undetectable by all of these taste testers. Um, but the capsaicinoids also have, uh, that's really just a word that's sort of describing capsaicin and things and chemicals that are very similar to it. Um, so these analogs um, are, are these other related molecules, and there's a whole bunch of them. So if, if we talk about where they fall as a chemical unit on the Scoville scale, we said that capsaicin is at 16 million. If we work our way down, and just for relative perspective, capsaicin is a, almost 70% of all the capsaicinoids out there. Right, so it's the vast majority. When we talk about hotness, we attribute it to capsaicin because that's usually what's contributing most of the hotness. Right, which is why people just say capsaicin. Right, it's way easier it's, to do it that way. Right? Yeah. If we go down the scale, so from 16 million, 15 million is dihydrocapsaicin. 9.2 is non-ivamide. 9.1 is nordihydrocapsaicin, which is about, you know, call it 7% of the total um, capsaicinoid pool out there. Mm-hmm. At 8.6 million, we have homocapsaicin and homodihydrocapsaicin. Holy moly. Um, and then we start getting into these other analogs. So at 160,000 um, Scoville units, we have something called Shagol. Uh, S-H-O-G-A-O-L. I have no idea how to say that word. It's derived from the Japanese word for ginger, um, which oh, makes sense because ginger is also... If you don't cook it, when, when, when you cook it, the, 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 actually, this shaogul sort of loses its pungency. Um, but if you eat raw ginger, it has a spiciness to it. It's a different spiciness, right. but it's, there, there's something pungent about it. 
So that's at 160,000. At 100,000, we have pepperine, which is what makes black pepper spicy. It's a totally different compound, but it's still you know measurable. Um, at 60,000, we have gingerol, which is what's actually in ginger. And at 16,000, we have something called capsiate, which is like a really, really, really mild version of, of capsaicin. So there's a whole scale of, uh, of, of actual chemical compounds of these capsaicinoids that make stuff pungent. And it's really the different ratios of these compounds that make things either very pungent or not very pungent. But generally, we're, because it's so predominant of all of these compounds, we just talk about capsaicin. And what's also an interesting way to think about, uh, you know, the the variety of what we'll call like pungent uh, molecules out there is beyond the fact that some of them are very chemically similar in terms of their actual structure. I think an important piece of this is they also tend to activate similar response pathways in our bodies. So some of the aspects of our cells that actually decide this is spicy, um, because they're kind of all using the same communication network, we sort of perceive them as similar as well. So there's, there's sort of two sides of it, right? Like some of them may be chemically similar, but others may be confirmationally similar enough that they can kind of just have our body react the same way. So I don't know if that distinction makes sense, but I think it's maybe worth noting and, and it's why, yeah, there, there is a wide range of, not everything is uniformly spicy or has the same, obviously, flavor profile. And and that's where, you know, the way you're preparing the food and what you're preparing it with can, can do all sorts of, you know, magical things there in terms of how stuff changes. But it is interesting how many of them fall into the same grooves, basically, in terms of how our cells perceive them. Yeah, and that, that's actually a really important point. Um, and I'll, I'll go back to that uh, ricinofurotoxin. It is not a capsaicinoid. It's something totally different. But it is similar enough in terms of the biological pathways and the, you know, the neurosensory pathways for how it binds to certain receptors and how those cells transduce signals and how your brain will eventually process those signals as pain or heat. Um, but right. like, to your point that the, the chemical itself has nothing to do with capsaicin. Right. And uh, there was another one, actually, that I don't think you mentioned, um, which is allyl isothiocyanate, which is, I think, the compound that gives mustard and wasabi its pungency. And horseradish. And, and horseradish. And when I think of pungency, I, I think of like when you eat a really spicy mustard, like a whole grain mustard, and you get... Uh, you know, you feel your sinuses immediately clear. <laughs> that's kind of what, that's what I think of when I think of pungency. I don't personally think of pungency as an experience the same way as like if I'm eating hot wings, but they follow again, a similar pathway in terms of how your brain figures out that they are spicy in yeah. some way. So you, you brought up those isothiocyanates. Um, those are not capsaicinoids, right. right? Capsaicin, capsaicinoids, you know, uh, Pepperine, gingerol, those are all, you know, in the chemical family of alkylamides. These are that they have a relatively heavy um, mass. They have you know, these long fatty acid tails. Mm -hmm. So when you eat them, they just stay in your mouth. Which is why right. these things, when you eat black pepper or straight up ginger or peppers, your mouth is the thing that's on fire. But when you eat really hot mustard or horseradish or wasabi, my nose starts running. That's oh, really? be because those isothiocyanates 
they can vaporize. And when they oh. do, they actually become vapor and they lift up into your sinuses, which oh, is that's why cool. your mouth doesn't burn, your nose does. That's really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it sort of changes where in your uh, sinus, you know. Exactly. All of these yeah. things make me cry, but <laughs> what, what part of me hurts the most changes. <laughs> well, I think that's, you know, hurt there is really important because at the end of the day, spicy food is pain. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. There can be very flavorful pain out there and a lot of spicy food that most people eat fall into that category or else basically why would we eat it and pain is you know a pretty complex biological process we're not going to talk about every aspect of pain because there are there are several different ways you can think about it but it ultimately involves these specialized uh, nerve cells uh, that are known as nociceptors and nociceptors are these free nerve cells that are actually found throughout the body uh, but not in the central nervous system and just a quick point of clarification, because I realized I was getting confused as I was reading about this. So neurons are individual specialized cells, and we can kind of interchangeably call them nerve cells, and collections of neurons form nerves. So contextually, there could be some differences in why you might use one or the other in terms of like where the nucleus of the cell actually is, or where the... Um, Dendrites, right? Is that one of the dendrites words? and axons? And axon, and, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're not going to get into that level of detail. So we're going to kind of use them interchangeably. But as a side note, there the neurons. Not all neurons or nerve cells communicate pain signals, right? When you think about common speech, we talk about like uh, hitting a nerve or someone getting on your nerves. There is this negative connotation to that experience, but. Really, all they do is figure out ways to communicate uh, based on internal and external stimuli. So they kind of represent your body's, uh, you know, highway system basically for communication and how uh, different parts of your body can enact change in other different parts of the body almost instantaneously in some cases, which is pretty different from, I guess, how other, you know, uh, signaling might work in the body, like for example, like hormone secretion, where the molecule has to actually go there and do something when it gets there, uh, or even like inflammation response. Um, but neuro signaling is different, or neuron signaling, excuse me, is different than that. And it, it's more of a, it, it's like, I don't know, email to, uh, I don't know, like hormonal snail mail, basically. I, I see where you're going. I might with that. cut that out. I, don't I, know I, if I, like that part. <laughs> I think the, the analogy that I would use is, or to, to sort of illustrate this point, is there are a, a lot of case study examples of your, uh, you know, your your neural networks inside of your brain, mm-hmm. or really not just in your brain, but your connections sort of getting disrupted somehow. And the go-to example is you can step on someone's foot, and their foot is supposed to be the thing that hurts mm-hmm. because. That's where that, you know, ouch signal is firing from. And it should get to your brain and say, ow, my foot hurts. So, you know, hop around on the other foot. But there are some people with uh, these neurological disorders that don't experience the pain in that area. You can step on their foot and their left hand is going to really hurt as if you stepped on it. And that has nothing to do with where the actual pain came from. It's all to do with how the brain processes that signal of pain and where that signal came from. So it, it, it's, 
it's a very complex, you know, neurological system of where this pain goes, but we're going to make the assumption that everyone's neurons are firing correctly. Right. That, that, that is an important assumption. Dan's are not, but no, <laughs> not usually. Um, but speaking of neurons firing, so nociceptors and other neurons, uh, they transmit in, well, in nociceptors case, it's pain signals, but they transmit signals via, uh, neurotransmitters aptly named, right? Um, neurotransmitters are basically the signaling molecules that are secreted by neurons and can cross a synapse. And a synapse is like a cellular junction. It's where these cells kind of connect to form basically circuitry throughout your body that can kind of pass messages back and forth. You can kind of think of them, if we're going to stick with sort of a highway analogy, you can think of them like different exits or intersections that connect the major highways or roads in your body's communication network. And that's how, again, assuming everything is, uh, assuming your wires aren't, you know, almost literally crossed, uh, when you step on your foot, your foot hurts because that's kind of the path that that those uh, signaling molecules take. So ultimately, the nociceptor has to figure out that it should send a pain signal. And it really depends on the type of, uh, of pain. So we talked about capsaicin. That's the main uh, pungent capsaicinoid that makes pepper spicy. And it's an important uh, molecule in terms of interacting with some of our cellular receptors. You want to tell uh, tell everybody what cellular receptors actually are? Because we, we've used that word a lot in a few different, uh, you know. Sure. So we're, we're going to zoom really far into the cellular level, right, where an individual cell has a plasma membrane. And on that plasma membrane, which is a phospholipid bilayer, if anyone wants to remember that vocabulary, um, which is this sort of fluid mosaic. That's another shout out to high school biology. Um, fluid mosaic, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's this model where you, you know your, your membrane has a whole bunch of proteins on it, and they're kind of constantly moving around. It's not a rigid structure. And that um, sort of uh, mosaicism allows for things to you know, physically move around, but also for things to pass through the membrane. So when we talk about receptors, what we're essentially talking about are proteins that stick outside of the cellular membrane. So they're attached to the membrane and they stick outside and stuff will attach to them and it will receive them. And because those receptors span the length of the, or the width, rather, of the plasma membrane, when something attaches to it from the outside, it transduces a signal to the inside of the cell. And then there's a whole cascade of depending on, you know, wh what signal it actually is. It could, you know, go tell the cell, hey, go divide, or hey, this is a virus, go kill it, or ouch, right. this really hurts. Go tell the brain this hurts and not to do that. Go tell the brain I just ate a ghost pepper. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And the phospholipid bilayer is... In the nuclear power episode, when we were talking about the effects of radiation, we talked about how, you know, your body and your cells and everything live in this kind of balancing act of basically electrochemical gradients. The phospholipid bilayer is really good at preventing ion flow, which is another key word from that episode, right? Charged uh, molecules, positively or negatively charged. And so these receptor or these ion channels, which are particularly relevant here, are the way that we can kind of control what that gradient is. Because as that gradient changes between the inside and the outside of the cell, as the pH uh, and the inside and the outside of the cell changes, different things can happen. Some of them good, some of them intentional, and some of them uh, bad, right? So 
these receptors are an important uh, moderator or way of facilitating that exchange because we wouldn't want it to just happen on its own, which is kind of why your cells, among probably many other reasons, need some of that uh, regulation through the through the uh, bilayer. Right, and and regulation, I think, is the is the right word here. And you talk about all of the you know agencies that exist in you know actual society. There's a lot of rules for us to follow. Um, when you break it down on the molecular level, cells have just an incredible, and th- this is what makes me so. Uh, excited and motivated by biology. It is absolutely incredible to me that evolution ended up looking like what it does. It is so not accidental. It is so intelligent. It's, you know, there is so much beauty in this biology. It is just, oh, I could talk about it all day. Um, But (laughs) no, it is really crazy where you look at it and it's sort of like, how in the world did this... uh you know, get figured out or right. sort of, sort of uh, end up that way. So I, I completely agree. And I think that's absolutely the case here. So in terms of the the pain response, there, there are a lot of different pain receptors, uh, or excuse me, uh, pain related receptors, I should say. And they're called TRIP receptors, uh, TRP, and it stands for transient receptor potential channels. So these receptors, as we said, are ion channels. In other words, they interact with molecules that have a positive or negative charge. They're usually uh, highly selective for calcium. And we have these all over our body and in our body, and we have a lot of different kinds. And different mammals have different subtypes of these receptors in different quantities. And they actually can also do different things in different species, which is is a whole, uh, I think, a whole other, uh, you know, rabbit hole to go down. But they're an important way that cells can interact with their environment. And the receptor we really care about here is TRPV1, also known as the capsaicin receptor in humans. And you can imagine why it was uh, named that, because we realized this is the receptor that capsaicin interacts with. So the receptor does a couple of things, including uh, detecting and communicating body temperature changes, uh, like actual heat changes. So above about 109 degrees Fahrenheit, these receptors can become activated. And that Again, we talked about shared communication pathway. The fact that these are responsive to heat and this capsaicin chemical are basically why when we talk about food, we talk about how hot it is because it actually elicits a physical response that essentially mirrors a temperature change or, or burning essentially, right? So I, I, this is the, the very extreme version of this, but um, yes, uh, trip V1 you know, sort of fires the... Uh, ouch, I'm on fire signal to the brain. <laughs> but if, if I think everyone sort of heard this. I don't know if it's a myth or what, what the right word to describe it is. But if you get you know first degree burns, those hurt the most. But if you get third degree burns, those actually don't hurt as badly because you know, you've just been totally incinerated. Yeah, that's, you know, not actually true. Um, but there's some validity to it. And that validity actually is when your cells are exposed to enough noxious um, stimuli, right? Let, let's say that, or maybe we should describe it differently. They're either burned off or you have a mutation that means you don't have any TRPV1 receptors on your cells. Mm-hmm. That would mean that those cells will not ever send the I'm on fire signal to the brain. Right. So you could put your hand in fire, and if your hand cells don't have TRPV1 on them, then it will not relay that message to the brain. 
it would still hurt you and it would burn your hand and it might become infected and you might go into septic shock and die, which is why we have evolved to have these types of receptors to yeah. stop us from, uh, you know, experiencing damage to our, our bodily tissue. So these things are actually a selective advantage, but uh, there's something to be said about not having them actually means you can't feel that type of pain. It's a very good clarification. And yeah, it makes me think of um, the bad guy in uh, The World Is Not Enough, Renard, right? His big his big gimmick and Bond bad guys have gimmicks. It's usually. been five minutes, everyone. Yeah. Got to bring up James Got to bring it up. He can't feel pain. And whenever I watch that movie, I'm amazed that he... Uh, like People who cannot feel pain in general, let alone uh, you know heat or temperature pain... It's extremely dangerous. Uh, how else are you supposed to know that uh, your appendix is about to burst or something like that? Or how else are you supposed to know that you just cut yourself and may be uh, bleeding or may have an infection? Uh, so it is a very, like you said, it's a selective advantage. It's an important aspect of how we can make sure that things are going well and find out when things are not going well. Right. And it's not always, you know, trip V1 that we're talking about. There are, there's, right. you know, a whole family of receptors here and there's you know even subfamilies to those families, but nociception in general, you know, is designed to keep bad things away from you. But that's chemical like capsaicin what we're talking about here. It's mechanical like you're, you know, you get cut or you get crushed or something. That's a different receptor that's relaying that signal. Right. Or you know, specific thermal nociceptors. Um, and all of these produce dedicated signals that travel to the brain and get processed in the brain. So if either that signal transduction is interrupted mm-hmm. or the receptor itself can't receive a signal or the brain doesn't process it correctly, then right. the end result is you don't get the same response. You don't feel pain the way that everyone else does. Absolutely. And I think what you just touched on, it would be a good... A good chance to talk about sensitization. So sensitization is essentially how sensitive, what what capacity for detection and response do your cells or, or receptors or your body have. And it is not, it's not binary. It's not usually just on and off. Tissue damage can lead to inflammation and among other things can release inflammatory mediators like prostaglandins and uh, bradykinins, these two agents can actually increase sensitivity to certain types of pain depending on what sort of damage or pain you experienced. And that can make the area hyperalgesic. It's a word that I think a lot of people may have heard. That means essentially sensitive to pain. Or it can actually cause you to experience pain when even non-painful stimuli are present. And that's called allodynia. And I think we've all experienced this in one way or another if you've gotten a sunburn before. Uh, even lightly touching an area, right, a very non-painful action when you've got a bad sunburn can be extremely painful. And you are that much more sensitive to, again, uh, heat exposure, uh, right, like taking a hot shower hurts when you have a sunburn. Um, and some of that is is like mechanical, uh, like pressure-based uh, pain, which is how some other receptors work. Uh, but a lot of it is just that your body is in sort of hypersensitivity mode, right? And one other thing I wanted to call out, which I th- I didn't really know, but I thought it was interesting, is separate from sensitization, there's also something called uh, habituation. And there's some research that actually says that beyond... Uh, so sensitization is, is 
tends to be more of a kind of short-term acute response thing. So for example, if you have prolonged exposure to capsaicin, eventually your brain starts to be like, all right, I got the message. I don't need to hear this anymore. I'm going to start decreasing that trip V1 activity. And so this essentially happens because you get a lot of extracellular calcium ions and that kind of muddies or dampens the signal. So the first hot wing you have is basically the hottest. And in theory, if you keep eating them, eventually your brain just sort of says like, all right, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm going to go, you know, pay attention to something else. But habituation is different. That says that the longer you routinely eat spicy food, and this is kind of like a nature versus nurture thing, and there is probably some genetic predisposition to spiciness. There almost certainly has to be. Um, but basically, if you keep eating spicy food, you can build a tolerance. So that's kind of an interesting thing when you think about different cultures and how much, you know, different spices play a role in almost in so many meals in that cuisine. I, I, I would have gone with uh, habituation and alcohol as my example. Oh, yeah, that's a good in example. In college or, you know, right after college, one beer... Not that I've ever had one. Does very little to anyone. Like you, you could have a whole bunch of them and be totally fine. Right. But if you stop your, you know, horrible college habits, um, <laughs> and you lead a, you know, normal, responsible, very respected and upright life. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you build one a beer. Yep. And I'm like, whoa. Yeah. I, I I used to be a lot better than this. No, it's true. It and I mean it applies to so many different things. I mean I'm sure there's a sugar aspect there, right? Like if you eat one cupcake or piece of cake once a month, um, it's probably going to be extremely sweet. If you're having one every single day, you know, eventually it doesn't quite scratch that itch, so to speak. Um, and again, spicy food is similar. If you eat something with jalapenos in it every day, eventually you're going to start reaching for the habaneros because you're going to need, you're, you're assuming you really like spicy food. You're going to need to change that stimulus. Right. And and th these phenomena, the, the sensitization, desensitization, which is obviously the opposite, um, and habituation, and specifically with respect to uh, the, the trip family of, of receptors, are being actively explored in pharmaceuticals and, and in medicine um, as a way to alleviate chronic pain or anxiety. It, it's mm -hmm. actually a really, really captivating medical field, but yeah. it... It, it's not quite as simple as, you know, uh, you, you you feel depressed, here's a hot pepper, now you're going to be depressed, and it's going to hurt. Right. <laughs> yes, uh, it would be exploiting the mechanism, not necessarily the, uh, you know, specific right. experience. I think, should we talk about why uh, people like spicy food and maybe what, what people get out of it? Like Some people, not all people like spicy food. Well, you're right, not all people do, but... People, as a you know, humans collectively, have been enjoying spicy food for a really long time. I was reading an article about um, some basically unknown uh, grain or sort of seed uh, evidence that they found on like an archaeological site that was over six thousand years old uh, in what is today South America, and it was evidence of people not only eating spicy foods once they figured out what it was, but actually sort of domesticating these, like specifically planting and growing these crops as far back as 6,000 years ago. I mean, these have been part of the human experience for 
I mean, an extremely long time, possibly longer. That's I, just about as far I got as you know. beat. I got oh, one that, that that goes back twenty three thousand years. This okay, it's like a little bit longer in, in the Middle East region. Okay, um, it's you know again some archaeological dig un- uncovered a person uh, or, or a person's remains and what appeared to be some kind of mustard, but they have you know, they the archaeologists have no idea if this was a food or if it was a medication or if it oh, was a yeah. decoration or they've. Absolutely no idea, but well, that's I think it could be any of those things. We just talk about the potential medical implications. Right, it's obviously a a type of food. Mm-hmm. Could you use it as a decoration? I suppose. I mean, there's infinite uses for this stuff. Yeah, um, and without being there, uh, I think it would be hard to tell. But on on some level, uh, it, if if you look at where the hottest peppers tend to grow, like if you look at a map. They all grow in region geographic regions that tend to be pretty hot um, and mm-hmm. pretty prone to a lot of you know modern day diseases and bacteria. Um, so is it possible that it's sort of selective to hmm. breed there because you know in terms of uh, the fauna wants to be able to reproduce, so right. it develops this uh, defense mechanism, and the people there then start enjoying it right. because maybe it, I don't know, kills the bacteria in the food. Yeah, could it, right, could it provide some, because it's highly acidic and could it, uh, yeah, offer some level of basic protection? I think it's a really interesting idea and I'm sure um, I'm sure many people have studied this or, tr- or tried to answer that question of, like you said, was it, decorative was it uh ceremony you know some kind of ceremony or or ritual was it uh truly just people really liked it so they just ate it uh and it's probably some combination uh of all the above i think um there was another interesting article that i was reading um and and the 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 result of it, it the the whole point of the article was to sort of talk about why humans eat spicy foods like what's the appeal is there's there just a genetic predisposition for it is it because they're adrenaline junkies and it sort of elicits the same physiological response as jumping out of an airplane Mm -hmm. we don't exactly know the answer to that but one of the conclusions of this article um after this big rating system was that people who uh enjoy spicy foods don't actually rate them as less painful right they just for whatever reason, enjoy that pain more. And it could be because there, you know, it's pain releases endorphins and dopamine mm-hmm. and the, you know, you get that runner's high kind of thing. Right. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't think I've ever eaten anything ever spicy or not that has made me feel that kind of way. I was thinking about that too. Uh, and yeah, people have described kind of a euphoric feeling Sometimes when you eat spicy food, which yeah speaks to that sort of runner's high, I agree. I don't think I've ever eaten hot wings or something and thought, I don't know, it, it, it didn't give me that kind of feeling, or at least I would never use that word euphoric. But I personally believe that there's some truth to that kind of adrenaline junkie, uh, you know, fight or flight response kicking in and, and giving you that rush. Um, I think it's kind of analogous to like why people watch scary movies, you know, ride roller coasters. There's some reward for sort of surviving an experience like that. And in the case of spicy food, I mean, it's kind of fun to... I, I, today, it's a little 
blown out of proportion because we're so self-aware of it, right? So it's kind of, I find it hard to think about this purely objectively, like as a species, why does this happen? Because today it's like, you know, uh, man versus food, like these challenges of like, can you eat 12 of these really hot wings and you want to do it for bragging rights? And maybe it's always been bragging rights. Maybe that's what it comes down to. But I think that's interesting. And one thing that I kind of notice about those types of experiences, like the scary movie experience, the roller coaster, the spicy food, it kind of forces you to really be present in the moment in terms of what's happening. And I think that's appealing. I think that's something that as a species, especially today, we go a million miles an hour doing everything. It kind of forces your brain to hone in and pay attention to detail about what's happening right now, um, which I think is really interesting. And another thing that I really regret that I just thought of as I was on my way over here to record this was we should have done like a hot one style uh, tasting of like spicy hot sauces while we were recording this episode. That would have been hilarious. If I'm the one watching and judging, yes. Oh, no, you got to participate. Oh, then funny might not be the word that I use. Um, It'd be good for a while, and then by the end, it would just be uh, unintelligible. All right, so let me ask you then. What's the hottest thing you've ever eaten? Spice-wise, pungency-wise. Yeah, so uh, pungency-wise, so there are two. I would say there are two that are very spicy hot sauces that I specifically remember. So the first was... The 911 sauce from Cluck U Chicken. And Cluck Watch U- your mouth. <laughs> Cluck University, Dean. Um, <laughs> this, you know, this was like a local uh, chicken spot in, I think they have a couple locations in New Jersey, but their 911 sauce, the best estimate I could find online is rated at about a million Scoville units. The hottest one, though, I've ever had, and I mentioned Man vs. Food, was from uh, Chicken or the Egg and uh, LBI, also in New Jersey. They have this sauce called the ludicrous sauce. And I think the challenge for man vs. food was, or really, you know, anyone can do it, but it was on the show. You got to eat, I think, 12 of these wings in like 15 minutes. And you get a t-shirt and your name on a plaque. So it's obviously worth it. Um, This sauce is rated at 3 million Scoville units. And it was brutal. You tried it too. So I had a wing at Cluck U and it was... Very hot. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but you you know you suffer through it, and it was an experience to talk about. Yeah, I think I like dipped my pinky in the sauce at um, chicken or the chicken egg. and the egg, and it was yeah, it was definitively worse. There was there was absolutely no ambiguity there. Yeah, I didn't yeah. even it was eat a whole deal. wing. No, me neither. Uh, it and in hindsight, and this goes back to what I was saying about presence and kind of you know presence of mind. I feel like it was at least an hour before I felt like a functioning human being again, where everything wasn't firing saying, your mouth is melting right now. You know what I mean? It felt like it took that long for me to just be able to have other thoughts. And not that I'm saying that's a good thing, but again, I think it might speak to what's interesting about spicy food culturally and why people may use it in some almost meditative capacity, at least when we think in human history, right? Maybe not today. I don't know. Maybe maybe there are like wing shops that offer meditation classes. That would be interesting. Could be. Yeah, I think uh, it, the chicken and the egg is what sort of taught me that you have these pain receptors that these, you know, I, I didn't know at the time, but, um, you know, your trip family receptors, certainly in your mouth, but also on your buttocks. Yes. Because, you know, two hours later, three hours later, <laughs> it burns again. 
Yeah, they like I said, they're all over your body, and uh, and yeah, they're, they're you know different organs in your body as well. But it's crazy stuff. We also had so much time while it was burning that you you decided to look it up and say, why does this hurt so badly? Yeah, like, it was, that's how you learned. About it was it. not fun. And uh, maybe just to, as we kind of wrap up here. I think everyone has their own remedy for how do you deal with spicy food? Like what's, what's the way to call the spicy flavor? Is that the right word? Call? Yeah. Sure. Uh, subdue. I don't know. Alleviate. That's a better one. Uh, I think milk is the neutralize. best Neutralize. What do you think? What, like what's I your go-to? I would go to? neutralize. Would you? What is your question? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Neutralize. How would you neutralize? Like you just ate something spicy. What's, ah. what's your go-to uh, remedy? Well, considering capsaicin and capsaicinoids are um, lipophilic, you would need something, you know, like dissolves like. Um, you'd need something also lipophilic, so something pretty fatty that loves fats. Like milk. Milk, cheese. Peanut butter? I think peanut butter could do it. Um, oh, what you would try. not do is drink water or you know straight up alcohol that would actually probably make it worse right all Uh, that does is basically move all that spicy goodness around your mouth and just spread it to more places when you drink water Uh, so yeah you need because it's it's fat soluble so you need some kind of fatty thing riddle me this then dan when i think of you know someone going to eat hot wings right right it's usually at say a bar yeah and usually you're having a beer with it. Yeah. Would, would I be totally out of place to go to a bar with you, order a plate of hot wings, and a glass of chocolate milk? Would you be out of place? The answer is no, because you love milk. Would any one person be out of place? I think they'd get some weird looks, which I don't know why. The only thing I can guess is that, again, modern... And when I say modern, I'm talking like the last, let's say, 30 years hot sauce culture is it's like craft beer right there's so many different sauces i think everyone's been to some kind of restaurant where there's a wall full of hot sauces right you can buy them online you can get them here get them there it's there's so much variety now in the same way that how craft beers have gotten funkier flavors and higher abv and they're stronger and heavier and more complex I think the same is true with hot sauces, but if you were to go back years ago and think about you're drinking a, a beer, which at the time was predominantly, you know, relatively light beers or, or relatively singular in terms of how the flavor profile was, I think the hot sauces were probably the same. So if you ordered wings, maybe it wasn't as spicy as some sauces are today. You know, you don't probably didn't have restaurants 30, 40 years ago that offered 40 different hot sauces you know, like Buffalo Wild Wings does today or something like that. So that's, that, that's my only thinking is that back when hot sauces kind of, again, they've been around forever in some capacity, but you're not talking about like a Coors Light and, you know, just generic hot sauce. You're talking about like a a mango double IPA and some kind of like Szechuan pepper lemon zing sauce or something. And like those that flavor delicious. I know I actually want one right now. Those, those flavor combinations I think are getting funkier. So maybe that's why I don't know if that was your initial question. Your initial question was, would it be weird to order chocolate milk? It, all right. Ignore the chocolate. What if it's just milk? milk? I, don't, I think it makes sense. Um, but I think that's why like hot wings and like beer culture are kind of, hand in hand like they, they feel like they kind of 
came up together, so to speak. Yeah, it makes sense. So that's what, my theory. What do you say we let everyone digest this and we can go get a Szechuan mango IPA? Oh, God. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. Hope you learned something about capsaicin, about spicy foods, and uh, we'll see you next time.